Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Colette and Tom here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have more fallout from Gary Lineker's clash with the BBC, James Norton's nudes and preliminary hearings in the High Courts brought by various claimants against Associated News Limited. Prince Harry and Sir Elton John are among the individuals who allege unlawful information gathering by the publishing company Associated News Limited, which publishes the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. The pair appeared at the High Court on Tuesday, the 28th of March 2023, at the start of the four-day preliminary hearing. Others taking part in the legal action include Sir Elton John's husband, David Furnish, and Baroness Doreen Lawrence, the mother of Stephen Lawrence, who was murdered in a racist attack in 1993. Baroness Lawrence alleges that her bank accounts were monitored to check whether she was receiving any money from other newspapers during the Daily Mail's Justice for Stephen Lawrence campaign. Speaking in court, her lawyer said she finds it hard to believe the level of duplicity and manipulation that was clearly at play, knowing now that as she does, that the Daily Mail's outward support of her fight to bring Stephen's killers to justice was hollow and worse, entirely false. Associated News are arguing that these claims have been brought too late. Uh, Tom, I guess that's the first issue we have to deal with uh, on, on this hearing at the moment that's happened this week. By relying on limitation, ANL has to argue that these individuals have to prove that they did not know earlier or could, could not have discovered earlier that they might have had a claim against ANL for the alleged misuse of private information. Do you think the claimants will be able to show this for, for the case to move forward? Well, having not seen the evidence, I, I can't really say with with any degree of, of confidence uh, one way or the other on that. Um, it does strike me that there are some interesting parts to this argument. Um, so the limitation period in a misuse of private information claim, which so far as the judiciary have been able to work out its its basis as a cause of action appears to be a tort and therefore the limitation period is the standard tort limitation period of six years. Six years from the date upon which the action complained about occurs or the claimant becomes aware um, of uh, the action giving rise to the claim. So quite a long period must have elapsed between the alleged incidents and today for the defendant even to be making this argument. And it does strike me that there is always this slight incoherence in defendant's position when they argue limitation has expired in that on the one hand, they're denying having conducted any of these activities for the purpose of denying liability in the claim. But on the other hand, they're saying claimants should have been aware of these activities earlier. Now, as any practicing lawyer listening will know, this is a quirk that arises because of the ability to make arguments in the alternative. And it's, there's, there's no problem in English legal procedure in making those arguments in the alternative. A, I didn't do it. B, if I did do it, you didn't realize I'd done it in time to bring the claim. And there is there is nothing procedurally incoherent in making that argument. But it, it does 
I think you know it sticks out a little bit, particularly to the lay listener, uh, and it does highlight that quirk of our uh, legal procedure, and it perhaps also, I think, highlights the secondary issue, which is that in other arguments that are being put before the court by associated newspapers, um, because these preliminary hearings are covering a range of matters, including limitation, but it's also been covering matters to do with disclosure of the names of journalists allegedly involved for the purpose of trying to seek further evidence from them. Associated Newspapers has been resisting uh, attempts by the claimant to uh, force the disclosure of names of individuals within its organisation that the claimant suspects of being involved in the wrongdoing. And Associated News has been resisting this on the basis of the rights contained in the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act, both of which the publications of ANL have vociferously attacked in recent years. I mean, if you look at this from the outside, it looks like an organization that absolutely does not believe in the Human Rights Act, in the European Convention, wants us out of the European Convention. And yet, when faced with litigation, uh, they're more than happy to uh, rely on the Human Rights Act. Now, again, there is nothing legally wrong with this, um, uh, but it it flags up a certain hypocrisy, uh, one might think, at a kind of uh, ethical level, a journalistic level, uh, and a political level. In terms of the precedent that a case like this could set, do you want this to move forward past you know these preliminary matters and, and go to a full trial? Absolutely, I do. Um, and this is just the media law geek in me speaking, really. Um, I'd love to see the arguments made in court on the substantive issues in this trial, and I really want to see a judgment on it. Um, because this does have the potential to set a really important precedent in our privacy law. At present, there has not been a case that has definitively ruled that the mere acquisition of private information, as opposed to the publication of private information, is actionable in tort for the purpose of an action in misuse of private information. The previous major case we had on phone hacking was the Galati case against Mirror Group newspapers a few years ago. In that case, the defendant Mirror Group newspapers admitted liability. They admitted that phone hacking was a misuse of private information. And so the point as to whether that mere acquisition, non-consensually, of private information could constitute a wrongful act for the purpose of tort law was never considered in anger by the court. Associated newspapers now, Associated News, are contesting that point. All indications are they're going to contest that point. Now, it might be that if we get through the preliminary hearings and the trial date is set, that they then change tack. It's entirely possible. They might take the decision that I think must have been taken by Mirror Group newspapers that... You don't really want a precedent confirming this. Um, but if defendant does contest that point at trial, as I suspect they may well do, 
then the court will be faced with the opportunity to set a precedent confirming that the mere acquisition of private information can constitute a violation of privacy. And if that happens, the court will face a really very interesting choice between saying this constitutes a misuse of the private information and thus comes within the ambit of our existing cause of action, or to say that acquiring information and publishing information are two fundamentally different acts, both invade privacy, one does so by the dissemination of private facts in a way that is akin to the dissemination of private facts version of privacy tort as set out by William Prosser in the USA. And the mere acquisition of information constitutes an intrusion into a person's private space or affairs and thus has a different tortious route. In other words, this is actually an opportunity for the courts to recognize another head of privacy liability other than the publication of private facts, um, uh, the potential for an intrusion tort. Um, now, it's something that I've, I've written on in the past, and I'm in favor of the courts recognizing a separate intrusion tort because I think that that then, A, creates the potential for individuals to protect their privacy in circumstances that are not covered routinely by misuse of private information and it opens up a new uh, a new pathway to liability that would go beyond just the phone hacking cases but also that it would keep conceptually distinct misuse of private information as a publication based dissemination based tort um, rather than putting more and more and more different potentially actionable activities under that head of liability. Um, which way the court would go on this, I don't know. Of course, the court might well consider the point and decide that acquisition is, is not an actionable tort. That's the other option here. Um, but I think there are good conceptual reasons for saying actually, this is the point at which when you consider other jurisdictions have separated these issues out. United States did in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, and in more recent times, Canada, New Zealand have separated these issues out. Um, there were recommendations to separate some of these issues in Australia, although um, the legislative reform that was proposed in Australia hasn't come to pass. Um, so there is there is there is a trend in the common law world away from keeping your privacy protection in a single cause of action, uh, and, and instead you know, spreading it out a little bit, keeping these things conceptually distinct from one another. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see where the courts uh, where the court decides to go on this. Uh, should it come to trial? And that's why I think that this is, for all that it's just, uh, you know, some of the usual range of celebrities complaining of poor treatment at the hands of the press, and we have seen that before, and we've heard of phone hacking before, this actually does have the potential to set a precedent that won't change the lives of that many people out there, but will certainly constitute a, uh, a significant development in the 
uh, in our privacy laws. While we're on the topic of acquisition versus publication, I want to talk about the naked photos of actor James Norton on stage in the London West End production of A Little Life, which were published on the Mail Online. Only temporarily, the photos were very quickly removed. But this has prompted calls for audiences to put their phones in lockboxes before shows to prevent publication and filming during performances. So I guess there are two questions here. Uh, One is the call to have people's phones locked up a proportionate response? And two, what's the male's liability here for publishing a photo that one must assume was obtained from an audience member? Okay, so we'll take these in the opposite order that you asked them. Um, The male, uh, I I cannot for the life of me fathom what the male was doing. Now, I didn't see the pictures that were published in the male. Maybe they uh, censored uh, some of the more graphic parts of the pictures, Uh, I would have thought that they would have done so, otherwise they really would be in trouble. Um, But there can be no public interest in publishing those those pictures. Um, They were clearly taken in a place where photography was prohibited. So at the very least, they meet all the requirements for traditional breach of confidence claim. Um, And insofar as uh, any person appearing... Uh, naked on stage, um, does so in a a, a limited space um, before a limited audience. It's not the same as appearing naked on film, uh, for example. Um, Then I think there's a fairly obviously reasonable expectation of privacy um, in, in those cases. It's a tad unusual that the victim in this story is male, because the usually, usually the victims of this sort of privacy violation are female. Um, it, it's by no means all the time, as this case proves, um, but that kind of voyeurism is oftentimes perpetrated by heterosexual men against women, uh, and um, pictures are not oftentimes published in major news outlets, Um, which again is unusual here, but they certainly do find their way circulated uh, around the darker corners of the internet. Um, It's telling that the male has removed the pictures. Um, Presumably uh, it has dawned on them fairly quickly that this is not a lawful thing to have done. Um, I would not be at all surprised if there's a claim issued by uh, Mr. Norton, which given the fairly swift withdrawal of the pictures, would, I should think, be settled very swiftly. As for the question of what we do with uh, audience phones, is it proportionate to ask audience members to lock up their phones or hand them in? Uh, Personally, I would have said yes long before anybody took a picture of a naked actor on stage um, because there is little more irritating when at the theatre than to have people... Uh, playing on their phones, um, and it's happening more and more and more. It's very distracting when these bright lights appear, you know, three or four seats down from you in the row. Um, so as a as, as a, a theatre fan, I would love it if nobody was allowed to have their mobile phone in the theatre. What a superb idea. Lock them all up. Throw them in the Thames for all I care. Um, let's, let's be done with these hideous devices. Um, is it a proportionate response in plays specifically where you have audience members appearing uh, in a state of undress on stage, you are concerned about their privacy, 
Uh, yes, I think it is. I think it is because if if that is not done, um, you're quite likely to have actors going, well, I won't be in this play then. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're already asking stage actors, and let's face it, stage actors are not paid vast sums of money. We're already asking them to do a really quite difficult job purely for our entertainment. Um, and uh, it's not unreasonable that they should put certain conditions on that in terms of how far uh, they are physically exposed. Um, now, how the how a th- working everyday theatre in practice is going to take several hundred people's mobile phones and lock them up in ways that are uh, secure and that ensure the right person gets their phone back at the end and that doesn't take hours and hours and hours to work out, I have no idea. Um, I'm glad it's not going to be my job to work out that logistical nightmare. Um, I think it could be very difficult. But quite clearly, the, the signs that are out there saying no photography, photography not permitted here, put your mobile phones away, which you see in every theatre these days, if these sorts of pictures are getting out, those signs aren't working and something else is going to have to be done. Moving away from misuse of private information and onto the defamation claims or potential defamation claims that I want to talk about today, LBC host James O'Brien is considering legal action following a vile and obvious libel made by talk radio host Mike Graham. Graham posted a tweet aimed at O'Brien during the furore over Gary Lineker's temporary suspension from the BBC, in which he called O'Brien a moron, utter pedo-apologist and plank, and accused O'Brien of killing the BBC. This case, one would think, is... A fairly obvious candidate for the very threatening letter before action, followed by the apology and withdrawal. Um, what Graham has said is the sort of thing Mike Graham does. He shoots his mouth off without really thinking about it. Um, he may decide he wants to bat on for a little while in order to bash the tofu eating Wokarati. Uh, in the form of James O'Brien, but ultimately what he said is so vague and yet obviously abusive um, and uh, I should think fairly obviously defamatory um, that uh, this, this, this won't go anywhere near a trial. Um, in a moment we'll talk about Another libel case, which I think, should it go to trial, um, really ought to be dealt with as a matter of opinion rather than an assertion of fact. And for the reasons that I'll, I'll give in a minute, um, I think were this to go to trial, this would also have to be treated as a, an assertion of opinion rather than an assertion of fact, at least in respect of the allegation that uh, O'Brien is an apologist for uh, paedophiles or a particular paedophile. It's not at all clear what Graham um, had in mind um, just from that one tweet. So, um, uh, but for the same sort of reasons as I'll give in a minute, I don't think that it would have a hope in hell's chance of uh, being defended um, as an expression of opinion, and quite rightly. Let's move on then to that other hypothetical claim. 
Jonathan Gullis, Tory MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, told Channel 4 that he does not care about upsetting those people who want to call people up here racist bigots, nuts and Nazis like Gary Lineker has done. It is what Gullis has said here actionable following Riley and Murray. Gullis is vaguely hinting that he's interpreting something that Lineker said, but he said it in an interview and he didn't identify the tweets that Lineker initially post- posted uh, or where he got his interpretation from, following Riley, is that not uh, an actionable talk? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And following Riley, it will be treated as an allegation of fact. I don't think that it should be. I think what Gullis has done here is allude, but allude quite obviously, to um, Lineker's earlier statements. He hasn't identified any particular statement, but he has alluded to he has alluded to the notion that he is interpreting something Lineker has said or done in the past, and he's attributing a highly controversial interpretation to that, one which uh, is undoubtedly defamatory of Lineker. Um, I think that that is an expression of Gullis's opinion, and as such, the appropriate defence would be a Section 3 defence of honest opinion. It is a defence that would, I should think, without any serious doubt, fail, because I can see no rational basis for that opinion. Um, But given the view that I've taken on Riley and Murray, uh, and I've expressed in the past, uh, and it's a view that I still hold, um, uh, the only way in which I can coherently say this case should be dealt with is as an expression of opinion. Um, And I think any case like this should be dealt with under section three um, and examine the evidence as to whether there is any rational basis for the opinion uh, and and be ready to say no in cases where there isn't, as I think this is uh, such a case. That's my opinion uh, as to how this should be dealt with. How it will be dealt with, if Lineker chooses to bring a claim, is as an assertion of fact, for the reasons you've given, that Gullis didn't identify the particular source of information um, upon which he is offering comments. So even if it is by its nature and opinion, it will be treated as an assertion of fact, um, because that is the way that the uh, courts have been dealing with these things for quite a long time, and it's the way that uh, Riley Murray tells us the courts will deal with this. Um, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that for the reasons I've given, but my discomfort is a pernickety academic discomfort um, about the nature of, uh, of, of opinions. Um, yeah, it's certainly actionable. Final defamation issue I want to discuss with you today is the death threats that have been made against two people who opposed Jeremy Clarkson's Diddley Squats farm expansion after they featured in season two of Clarkson's farm on Amazon. West Oxfordshire District Council has said that there were malicious communications against an unnamed councillor and a member of the public who spoke out against the 62-year-old former Top Gear presenter's plans. And just, I guess it raises the question of what responsibilities editors have to make sure that the people who appear in documentaries are not defamed. It's a really interesting question, Colette, and there is a potentially massive can of worms. So what's happened here is that we have a fantastically successful, by all accounts, Amazon semi-documentary. 
Clarkson's farm, in which Jeremy Clarkson documents his project to uh, take his farm in the Cotswolds from uh, hero from zero to hero. I mean, that's that's what he's trying to do. He wants, he's becoming a farmer and learning about the farm. And he started this project during lockdown uh, and turned it into a series because that's what Clarkson is, is good at doing. Um, it is in part a documentary in that it documents what he's doing, but it is also set up as an entertainment show in much the same way as Clarkson's other ventures like the Grand Tour and Top Gear before that whatever they might have been to begin with, became entertainment shows. Um, so primarily, what Clarkson's Farm is meant to do is give its audience something to relax to and enjoy on a Friday night. Now, with this in mind, it tells a story. It tells a story very much from Clarkson's point of view. And in some parts of this story... Um, we see Clarkson having run-in with the local authority in his area over planning permission for the various things he wants to do on his land. He wanted uh, to build a restaurant, for example. He needed planning permission to build a restaurant. Planning permission was denied. And in the show, we are shown various public meetings that Clarkson goes to to try to persuade the locals of his perspective and also the planning hearing at which he presents his case and some who are opposed to his application also present their case. Those encounters have been filmed and they have been edited for broadcast, edited for the eventual production. So what we get to see is the audience is entirely controlled by whoever has edited this, a team for which Amazon bears responsibility. So the question then becomes, what responsibility does Amazon have to the people who are not the normal subject of this show? They're not Clarkson, they're not Clarkson's family, they're not Clarkson's friends. The people who end up being in it because they took part in public proceedings, expressing their point of view, opposition to Clarkson's plans, when those remarks have been edited, and as a result, the impression has been created for people who are fans of Clarkson and who support Clarkson, that these individuals are troublemakers who are you know, doing down their hero. And it got me thinking, well, what liability could there be here? Is there a foreseeable risk of harm in this internet age where people get trolled for saying things uh, that are controversial, where it seems that, you know, there are, everyone has their own little pack online. Um, and uh, when one member of your pack comes under attack from somebody else, you go and attack them. Um, it seems to me not tremendously surprising that at least some individuals, and they're not portrayed sympathetically in this program, have been subjected to abuse. It's perhaps less foreseeable that the form of abuse would be death threats, but we have seen plenty of these things happening, um, whether in, you know directed at political figures, 
or directed at figures in the media. So if there's a if there is a foreseeable risk that this could happen, that ought to have some impact on the decision making process around how the edit is put together, then you start talking in terms of is there a duty of care to the individuals in the raw footage to edit it in such a way as to not expose them to a risk of harm. Um, and that's that's a negligence law question. Now, it's something I think we should you know think about in more detail. I, I haven't thought about it in enough detail. There are plenty of good reasons to say that this should not result in liability. It might not even result in a duty of care, but they are questions that shouldn't be dismissed without um, being thought about in some detail. So, um, I'm going to go away and think about them. And, of course, we'll bring back your answers uh, in further newscasts and media law podcasts to come. That wraps up everything that I want to talk about today. Thank you so much for your insights, Tom. Uh, It's been a pleasure as ever, Colette. Thanks very much. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.